as I stepped out the door of the apartment where I stay when I'm teaching here, just now there was a pack of coyotes, coyotes, started howling just then. Good timing for me. I love to hear them calling through the woods. Especially this time of year, there's something so poignant in that sound. And and I was also struck, I thought, about spending the night out. It's quite cold out. Just in my little walk across, (laughs) not very far, getting here. It's really chilly. I don't think I'd last too long if I had to spend the night out. But they, they do. And, you know, we're comfy and warm here. And I think it's, it's important to reflect on things we may take for granted, like being warm, having this beautiful shelter that we get to stay in tonight and and all the comfort we have here. And, you know, it doesn't come without a cost, does it? There is a cost for that. And it's good to bring it to mind and look and see if there's a way that we take things like this for granted somehow. It goes unnoticed almost at times, doesn't it? It's just the way it is. It's It's good to bring it to mind and count our blessings and remember that it doesn't come without a cost. It's good to remind ourselves of this. And I was thinking about the chanting of the precepts that we do together to start these evenings when, when we give a talk, when the teachers give a talk. That's our, our, our tradition here. We chant the refuges and precepts together. And it's powerful to give voice to this as a group, to voice this intention to cultivate harmony in our lives, to live as harmlessly as possible. And what does that mean? We can extend that in so many ways. What does it mean to live harmlessly. And there's a power and beauty to this that we also should not take for granted and really think about this power and the uplifting quality that this has in our lives. And really it brings joy and happiness, I think, to reflect on the power and the beauty of our intention and engaging with the precepts. You know, we don't have to be perfect. We, we engage in this way and we enter into a, an active process in cultivating this intention, bringing this powerful intention to mind. And we can feel good. We can bring, we can gladden and brighten and bring joy to the mind and the heart when we reflect on this commitment that we have to live in this way with integrity. We can hold our heads high and feel good. And it's, I think it's really important to take joy and happiness, good feelings from this. It's good for us to remember this. Remember this great goodness that we have undertaken in this way. A few few days ago, I had lunch over at the retreat center next door. I wanted to say hello to the, the teachers or to just and just ending tonight, the end of the month. Tomorrow is the end of the three-month retreat. And a big group of people over there having a closing event. 
seems so far away. It's right over there. And I was saying hello and visiting. And then as I was leaving, I, Joseph was there, Joseph Goldstein. And I said, hey, Joseph, what should I talk about on Friday? My talk coming up. And he just immediately said, non-clinging. <laughs> non-clinging, favorite subject of Joseph's. And it kind of goes right to the heart of things, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, that's, if we really think about it, all of the Buddhist teachings, you can bring them down to the teaching on not clinging, some aspect of that. Liberation through non-clinging, this is the, the heart of the teachings. So it seems like a good subject. So we'll see what I do with that. <laughs> but much of what we're doing in our practice is, is exploring the nature of clinging, holding on, grasping, identification, all the different ways we could speak about this. We're exploring that, that habit of mind, when that occurs, the suffering that arises from that. We're exploring that. And we, we explore that, we become intimate with that, those, this energy in the mind, in the heart, as a means to then find, engage with, discover the path of non-clinging, the path of letting go, right? That's how we find our way to letting go is by seeing where we're not, where we're holding on. We get to, to meet that directly in our experience over and over and over. And it's through, through this engagement, through this meeting that we learn that the mind, the heart starts to loosen its grip as a natural result of seeing this process and the suffering that comes from that. Quite a few years ago now, I was in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area in Northern California where I used to live. And I had gone to, a, uh, I'd heard about an evening talk, a teacher was gonna be leading an evening meditation and talk, it was a monk who I knew from spending time uh, at the monastery where he's the abbot, someone I, had great respect for, and it was a rare treat. So I, I had the evening free. I went there to, uh, to the place uh, in Berkeley where he was going to be leading the evening. And it was a usual thing with uh, some um, devotional chanting and uh, reflections, sitting meditation. And then the Ajahn was, um, was giving a talk, he began. Uh, his talk with these words that stayed with me now since uh, a long time. He said, I've been a monk for 25 years and I want you to know I haven't gotten anything out of it. Now at this point, he's been in robes for at least 35 or more years. He hasn't disrobed. This wasn't his preliminary, um, you know, letting us know he would be disrobing later that week or something that wasn't the point of making that statement, obviously. But you know, it's a powerful, it's a good way, attention getting statement to open a Dharma talk with by for a monk. Been doing this for 25 years, I haven't gotten anything out of it. You know, at face value, you might wonder, well, what's, what's going on here? Why would, why would he live that way? You know, he's dedicated his life to the teachings of the Buddha and to this life of great simplicity and um, austerity by our standards, certainly. You know, he's, he owns a bowl and a set of robes. Those are his material possessions. If, he, if he's going to eat any day, it's because someone feels moved to put some food in that bowl or the equivalent of that. These people don't get to hang on to food. If they're gonna eat someone every day, you imagine? I've lived that way. I had a chance to live that way. 
if every day here you had to hope (laughs) that someone felt moved to support you in your life and practice by giving you, putting, handing it right to you, putting it in your bowl, on your plate. And if they didn't, you didn't eat because that's the rule. This dependency on the generosity of others. And then his life, you know, this beloved teacher who is just his very presence as an inspiration to, to being and training nuns and monks in the monastery where he's the abbot. And, you know, and then he, he says, I want you to know I didn't get anything out of it. I haven't gotten anything out of it in 25 years. You know, like, so clearly he's, he's saying something, <laughs> wants us to hear in this. You know, he's not just doing it because it's a, a lot of fun. A great time being this monk. I mean, it has its joys, but it's not just because he's having a really great time. So why would he keep living that way? You know, and, and we can look in our own lives and, and in the culture that we live in, and it's a culture that's based a lot on getting and having and acquiring. That's strong in, in, in America, certainly. And so often the happiness that we find, our sense of who we are, is often really related to this getting and having of maybe things or experiences. We define ourselves a lot in these terms, all that we have. We have families and educational degrees and all kinds of stuff. We've had, oh, this great experience or that one. And so, you know, of course, sometimes there's some quality of this that comes to with us if when we take time for a retreat like this. You know, we, we want something, we want to get something from it. We, we go to a lot of trouble to come. You know, it, it's not easy to find time. It, it may have cost us money that's, that we had to scrape together to be able to come. And, we want something to show for, for our efforts and for our, all that we've sacrificed to be able to come. Perhaps we can see it that way. So clearly the monk, I, I, the story I told about, he wasn't saying that it had been without any value. That wasn't the point of that statement. But what he was pointing at there is that, that the value that he got from that choice to live in, in that simple way didn't come from anything he'd gotten, but all that he'd let go of. That's what his talk was about on the subject of letting go. Here's a quotation from Ajahn Sumedho. The way of spiritual life is a movement away from the distraction of attaining or acquiring. It is a relinquishing, a letting go. It simplifies our lives, freeing us from that which is unnecessary. There's no judgment or rejection It is pure mindfulness developing in the present moment, the only place truth can be found. And this could be obvious, this seems obvious. Oh yeah, it's about letting go. Everyone's talking about abandoning, letting go, relinquishing. These words show up a lot in these circles. But then, you know, to look and see what's really there in our mind, in our heart, and, and our attitude there. You know, we can put a lot of time and energy over the years in our practice pursuing certain kinds of experiences, meditative experiences, experiences depths of concentration, or refined states of mind, blissful, beautiful states that sometimes we, we either hear about or maybe we we have them, you know, we, moments we drop into beautiful, blissful states of quiet, or ease, equanimity, you know, and we, we spend a lot of time, we can even spend years trying to get one back. I once spent a long time trying to get back to this 
experience this state of mind that arose unbidden one evening. Felt like the mind of the Buddha. All powerful, nothing I couldn't know. Didn't last. What did I eat? How was I sitting? Oh, what was I doing? Just this in-breath. Trying to figure out all the minutia of to set it up so I could get it back. Ha, huh. that's a waste of time. I can't, it's not about state. Practice is never about states or experiences. It's about our relationship to them. But we can, we can chase after these things, you know, as though that were the point. But ultimately, whatever we might get out of the practice is, is about what we let go of, what we relinquish, what we abandon. We realize the end of suffering by abandoning the cause of suffering, not by getting something or getting to some state. It's not about the experience or the state. Somewhere I heard this, some this quotation, someone talking about when we come on retreats, I think it was Jack Cornfield, but I, I don't want to say it was because I don't actually know, but, but I think whoever it was said, when we go on retreat, it's not the shopping mall, it's the dump. We're not going to the mall, we're going to the dump, right? That's kind of, you know, humorous statement, but it it's really gets to the heart of things, you know. On Tuesday in her talk, Sky introduced the subject of renunciation, the Pali word nekama, one of the ten paramis, spoke about this renunciation. It's one of the, the ten perfections that said the Buddha developed over, over countless lifetimes, nekama, renunciation. We don't use this word much in in uh, our lives, and and it, it has a, a not a very good um, connotation, you know, connotations of often of denial or bleakness or or some kind of um, mortification or or uh, as kind of a not real happy. Oh, I'm going to renounce. We don't start jumping around. Our hearts, as uh, that quotation that. Sky used, our hearts don't leap up with joy at the thought of it, usually, do they? Doesn't sound so good. But, you know, that's what we're doing in our practice is we're exploring the landscape of renunciation. We're learning, whether we like it or not, to let go. Whether we even see that that's what's happening. And if we look in our own heart and mind and in our relationships to other minds and hearts in the world, in, in our relationships. And we see how suffering arises. See that suffering does arise there. And if we take away all of our explanations and stories and, oh, it's this, it's because of this and this and all of that that we can say, oh, this is why. If we strip all that data away, and what we'll see is that Clinging to anything at all leads to suffering. Holding on, clinging, grasping, whatever words you want to use. It's like a volunteering, volunteering to suffer. And so then this quality of renunciation then is actually the movement of wisdom and compassion in relationship to that, in the face of that. It's the movement of understanding of kindness, of care. It's not the movement of denial and repression and, um, and that kind of thing. It's actually the opposite, complete opposite. And beyond our personal lives, in the broader scope of, of the world and all of the dukkha, all the suffering of the wars and torments and divisions and strife in the world, we touch the immensity of that, then really compassion and renunciation are the, are the movements of wisdom and, and compassion in the face of that. You know, when suffering in the world in our own heart is seen with clarity and wisdom, then, then compassion and letting go and renunciation are the, 
are the truest and wisest response to that. You know, when we relate to suffering from, from delusion, then, then of course there's the usual kind of knee-jerk response to fight against it or run away, try to run away or fight, deny suffering, try to get away from it. And so, so this is our practice then, this exploration, this investigation of suffering and, and uh, exploring renunciation, letting go in terms, in relation to that. And so exploring that leads us, of course, we also, a part of that is exploring the um, energy of desire, of wanting, of craving, this movement of wanting desire in the mind and the heart, desire for things, for experiences, for sense pleasures, all of the things we might want, this wanting energy to look at that as part of this. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He said, the Buddha describes his teaching as running contrary to the way of the world. The way of the world is the way of following desire. And those who follow this way flow with the current of desire, seeking happiness by pursuing the objects in which they imagine they will find fulfillment. I mean, that's what's going on, mostly. The Buddha's message of renunciation states the opposite. The pull of desires to be resisted and eventually abandoned. Desires to be abandoned not because it is morally evil somehow, but because it is a root cause of suffering. Thus renunciation, turning away from craving and its drive for gratification, becomes the key to happiness and freedom. So it's not some moral judgment here. But if we look, the heart of the path of awakening lies in this quality of renunciation. It's the heart of the journey. But we don't think of it as as a desirable, attractive, you know, we might admire renunciation as an ideal or, you know, maybe we we can sense the importance and, but it's like, seems like bad tasting medicine and, you know, well, it's good for monks and nuns. You know, let them do that. And we make the we make the mistake of thinking that that a life of renunciation means we won't have any joy. We have to give up joy and pleasure and happiness and and enjoying life. And this denial, this idea of denying ourselves. But this is is a complete misunderstanding of this quality of renunciation. It's not only a misunderstanding, but but having this kind of of way of looking, it can really it can harden our hearts. It lead to a brittle a brittleness of heart and mind. It's it's not useful. It's and actually it's harmful to hold the practice in this way. And the point of of letting go of abandoning of renunciation is not to deny happiness, worldly, mundane happiness or joy, pleasure that we might find. And the Buddha described in various places the kinds of worldly happiness that one can have and one can enjoy. This is one place where he spoke to that. He said, there are four kinds of happiness that can be attained by a lay person who enjoys sensual pleasures. Which four? the happiness of possession, the happiness of enjoyment, the happiness of debtlessness, and the happiness of blamelessness. We spoke about it in these four ways, enjoying possessions, enjoyment, enjoying sense pleasures, being free of debt, being this happiness of blamelessness. This, he said in that teaching, all the others, they're fine. There's no judgment, you know, it's not saying, these are bad, don't have these. He said, these are things that one can enjoy. He said that the, the happiness of blamelessness, the others are not worth even a fraction of that happiness. This is the happiness that comes from our conduct, our sila. And, and, those, and we're not, we have a mind, heart free of remorse because we know we're blameless in our behavior. 
That's a great happiness. That's maybe a, a more refined kind of worldly happiness. But these are there for us. And the Buddha doesn't judge happiness in this way of worldly happiness, worldly pleasures. But he does point to the limitation of that. This is a limited. It's not the end of the, the, the road. And this leads us to encounter a really fundamental misunderstanding that's there a lot. It's the energy of grasping, of clinging, of craving that is the, the root cause of suffering in this, in this realm. It's not something inherent in, th- in the objects of what we might want. It's not inherent in any worldly pleasure or happiness. It's in our relationship to it. It's always the relationship, relationship to these things. So the Buddha offers us then a chance to make a trade in a certain way, to exchange a lesser happiness for a greater one. Sky read a, this quotation from the Dhammapada. I have a slightly different translation. I'll read it again. If by giving up a lesser happiness, one could experience a greater happiness a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. Right? If you had, you would give up a lesser happiness for, for something that was a greater, was more, more deeply satisfying. The teacher Tan Jeff, he said it's like trading candy for gold. He said an intelligent sacrifice is any in which you gain a greater happiness by letting go of a lesser one in the same way you'd give up a bag of candy if offered a pound of gold in exchange. In other words, it's like a profitable trade. So this analogy is an ancient one in the Buddhist tradition. And he quotes uh, one of the Buddha's disciples in, in a kind of an enlightenment poem in the Theragatta. This is one line from that. One of, uh, one of the Buddha's disciples said, I'll make a trade aging for the ageless burning for the unbound, for the highest peace, the unexcelled safety from bondage. I'll trade those, I'll trade for that. But you know, most of the time if we look, well, we wanna, we wanna keep the candy and get the gold, right? We want them both. You know, and we're afraid that somehow if we give up the candy part of that bargain, we'll, we'll wind up empty handed, you know, and, at least we know that candy tastes good, even if we're willing to admit that, that it's a transient pleasure. But you know, we don't trust it. What is this gold? We don't trust it. This is another statement from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Contemplating the dukkha inherent in following desire is one way to incline the mind to renunciation. Another way is to contemplate directly the benefits flowing from renunciation. To move from desire to renunciation is not, as might be imagined, to move from happiness to grief, from abundance to destitution. It is to pass from gross entangling pleasures to an exalted happiness and peace, from a condition of servitude to one of self-mastery. Desire ultimately breeds fear and sorrow but renunciation gives fearlessness and joy. That's a powerful statement. Renunciation leads to fearlessness and joy. I mean, who wouldn't trade? Who wouldn't make that trade? Servitude for self-mastery. Trade fear and sorrow for fearlessness and joy. It's obvious better deal. And so renunciation is seen as the very practice of freedom. In that letting go, freedom in that, it's right in that. It's seen as the practice of freedom. And so rather than being some, like a a hair shirt we put on to purge ourselves of, of attachments and desire, it's it's seen, it's described here, this practice of joy, practice of happiness. And ultimately, it's the, the practice of the deepest kind of happiness, of peace. Ajahn Chah said it very simply, this famous line from quotation from Ajahn Chah. He said, do everything with a mind that lets go. 
If you get, let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. And you know, we see this in our practice, in our lives, the, the ease, the peace that comes when, when the forces of craving and desire fall away, die down. You know, if we look at the energy of desire as it manifests in our minds and hearts, in our lives, there's always a quality of suffering associated there. You know, it tells us, it's, desire is telling us there's something lacking. You're not complete. You need this, whatever it is, to be complete, to be fulfilled, to be happy. You know, or we're not, I'm not good enough now, but if I get this, experience or if I, if I just get my mind to concentrate, then I'll be happy, whatever it is. It can be things, it can be experiences, or states. You know, we're not, it's not okay now, but it's this, if only, if I get that, if only I get that, when I get that, whatever it is. You know, this feeling of insufficiency not enough now. But then we, maybe we get the thing, whatever it is. How long before we need the next one? Because that one didn't last. They don't last. Then we're off after the next thing. And, and every time we follow that feeling of lack and, and pursuing something to fill that void, whatever it might be that we fixate on, we're, we're reinforcing this sense of not enough, insufficiency, as if the sufficiency and freedom of our heart is determined then by, we make it then determined by conditions. We make our happiness, our freedom, our peace, our ease, whatever. It's, we make it conditional. It's, it has to be when these conditions there. But that's not what the Buddha was pointing at. It's not what these teachings are pointing at. It's not a conditional freedom. That's not a real happiness because conditions are changing. And any happiness we find that way, it won't last. It's not going to last. But you know, when we sit and we watch our mind and heart and we see how this is powerful stuff, you know, we can't just decide I'm going I'm to make this change and have this fall away. You know, we come here, we sit down, and we just see this movement in the mind and the heart at times between chasing after the desire and then aversion, movement between these, and we see it for years. And it's powerful conditioning we're undoing here. It's, it might take a while. But we do let go of it, or we sit with it, and we don't have to chase it. You don't have to do that. We sit there and we feel that and we get to know it. And when we allow it, these energies to arise and pass away, in that moment, we're putting out that fire of suffering, you know, and there's this, ah, this relaxation that can come in those moments. You know, it's important that we, that we actually taste, acknowledge this, this freedom that comes in these moments when we when we let go of this movement, energy of grasping, of desire, of wanting, of clinging. And see that even in the midst of that, there are times when we can find a place of stillness and resting in the truth of the moment. Ah, oh, it's like this, we can know that. And even in that, right in the middle of it, we can let it arise and pass away, a sense of, craving, desire, wanting, and this underlying sense of lack. And we can find some freedom right within that. I've been talking about desire, but then we can we look and see um, aversion, how that arises, whispers, shouts of it, the judgments and criticisms and blames and intolerances and impatience that arises so often directed towards ourself, isn't it? All the ways that we aren't good enough. You know, there's so much suffering there. But we can, 
we can sit with this, all of that energy of not wanting, not okay, don't like, not good enough, get rid of it. Sit with that energy, meet it just as it is arising. And instead of believing all of the stories about it and what it means about me, we can allow that energy to arise, to pass away, to be still. We know it, this is aversion, not wanting, it feels like this. And we let it go, we care for it. And we can hold it kindly, carefully, like we, we might comfort a, an angry or a frightened child. And battle it, oh yes, of course it's there. Care for it and let it pass away. And so renunciation has this quality, I think, really imbued in there, if we hold it in the right way. There's this quality of kindness that is in, in there. It's part of it. It's the movement of kindness. We let go of struggle, fear, judgment, blame, these manifestations of the, the mind that says no, of aversion, especially towards ourselves. And we shift from a, a posture of resistance and denial to one of acceptance and kindness. And when we're able to do this, whenever we're able to do this, in, to whatever degree we can do this, in those moments, we're, we're, um, we're touching this quality of freedom that the Buddha was pointing at. And we're touching the happiness, the joy of letting go of renunciation. And sometimes we, impermanence brings us in, in touch with letting go, doesn't it? Right? Because everything, it's gone. That's what impermanence does. Things fall away. It puts us directly. We're holding on and it dissolves. So impermanence, this, uh, we come into relationship with letting go through the impermanent nature of things, sometimes through loss. Often this is an involuntary. It's not because we've chosen to explore it, right? But our bodies fail or death comes to those we love. We're parted from those that we care for and, and we mourn that loss. And, you know, this letting go, it's thrust upon us at times like this. Sometimes it feels, um, it feels more like something's gone wrong. You know, our expectations, our hopes are disappointed. Everything falls apart that we've been working so hard for. You know, things don't last. We all experience impermanence in this way. People change, events change. Often we don't, in ways we don't like, or find difficult to accept. And, and of course, this truth of impermanence, it teaches us, because if we hold on to that which is falling away, we suffer. So it teaches us about renunciation, but it, it can make us feel like things have gone wrong, like a, an attack or, or something, or a failure wouldn't happen if we could just do it right somehow. Leads to feelings. We then associate this letting go renunciation with fear and loss and frustration. But through our practice, through sitting with this truth, really touching it deeply, we start to connect with a deeper understanding of the truth of change and impermanence that, that holds and forms, permeates everything, including ourselves. Like to, I'll read uh, just an excerpt, a part of a, a beautiful poem by Mary Oliver called Black, In Blackwater Woods. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this, the fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. I read an article once, someone was quoting a, a Zen teacher and they had asked this, the question, what is the secret to your happiness? I guess it was a happy Zen teacher. And the, the reply was, 
the wholehearted and unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. One of those great Zen one-liners. But there's an important thing that's pointed to here because whenever we find ourselves in a, in a state of non-cooperation with the unavoidable, we suffer. So for example, if we're in a state of non-cooperation with the unavoidable truth of impermanence and change, if we're living in a state of resistance and argument, we'll never find any kind of ease or peace. You know, it shouldn't be like this. It's wrong and we'll struggle and try to hold on. Never find ease and rest. But we can learn and we do learn through our practice to listen to this resistance we have to this unavoidable truth. As this, as a, it's a message, it's telling us let go. We listen, it's saying let go. The Buddha was once asked if he could summarize his teachings in one short phrase and something like this, the reply, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I, as me, as mine. And this is maybe the deepest aspect of renunciation, the renunciation of, of what we could call self-view or seeing through the, the fallacy of self-view and the letting go of that which doesn't mean negating the negation of self, but seeing through the emptiness of it, seeing, understanding self-view, coming to understand that this process of how self-view arises, seeing it, it arises, it's born of, shaped by holding, clinging, identification with some aspect of experience in any moment. It's this clinging, the feeling that comes from that identification, that, that feeling arises there. And we, this is, it gives substance to this I am, feeling I am. See it over and over, whatever we might cling to. And so we see also times when it's not, doesn't arise, right? When there's no grasping at anything, it's just the flow of things and, and at the senses and there's no, holding on to any of it as I, as mine, as happening to me. You know, but this is powerful condition and we can trace it back as far as in our memory as we can go. You know, all of the stories that we have told ourselves or that we've been told, I'm no good, I'm fantastic, I'm this, I'm that. All of these ways that self-view is shaped by a thought or emotion, some feeling that comes and it's not seen, it's clung to, and it becomes our definition of who we are. Oh, I'm such a terrible yogi, the worst yogi. I'm such an incredible yogi, the best yogi. I'm, I'm, a, I'm so afraid, I'm, I'm a fearful person. You know, these things we tell ourselves, define ourselves as being this or that. You know, how many of them do we have over the course of the day? We can go from being the very worst possible meditator to the best one there is. Just even in one sitting period, right? Now, which of those is true? Which of those is, is the real us, me? You know, we see these things rising and passing. And so letting go on all these levels and maybe especially this level of, of seeing through the fallacy of, of self-view, the renunciation in, in relation to that is really the key to peace. And so then we see through this process of just meeting this process over and over, we see that freedom, liberation of mind and heart, it's not coming from anything that we get. It's not about a getting, not from maintaining some sublime state, but about letting go. And we see that, that, then, that this quality of renunciation is the wisest, most compassionate response to suffering in our own heart in the world. It's the movement of kindness, care, of understanding of wisdom, 
it really opens the door to freedom. So I'll end tonight with a summary of the teaching the Buddha gave to a wandering ascetic named Bahia. It's a famous sutta, short sutta, I know, familiar to many of you probably. There was a, an ascetic named Bahia. He was known as Bahia of the bark cloth. Apparently he, he managed to clothe himself in tree bark, made some kind of tree bark outfit. He was living somewhere in, towards the south of the area where the Buddha lived. And he, he, was, his, he was Bahia of the bark cloth and he, he, he would hang out under the trees with his bark cloth outfit. And, and uh, you know, people brought him offerings and came to him and, and he started thinking, well, maybe I'm enlightened. You know, he was a sincere ascetic, but he was, he was maybe a little deluded. And he, he, he thought, well, I, so a, a kindly Deva, who it said in, this, in the story may have been um, you know, a, f- a relative of his in a past life, so okay, Sabahia sitting here in his bark cloth robes, thinking maybe he's, he's enlightened. And he comes down and he says, hey, Bahia, not only are you not enlightened, you're not doing anything that's going to get you there. And Bahia, he's serious. He's a serious guy. You know, he really, he wants to understand. He says, well, okay, what can I do? What, what should I do? And the, I'm shortening this teaching. <laughs> and the deva says, you know, there's a fully enlightened Buddha up into the north. Go to him and he's got some good stuff to teach you. And that's, that's a, a good plan. So Bahia goes in search of the Buddha and travels long, long distance traveling. And he comes to where the Buddha is finally asking questions. Oh yeah, the ascetic Gota, he's up there, the Buddha. And he comes and the Buddha is out on alms round when Bahia shows up. And uh, the Buddha says, Bahia, now is not the time. And Bahia says, please, just give me some teaching. And the Buddha says, this isn't the time. I'm I'm on alms round. And Bahia says a second and then a third time. And I guess if you can, lucky enough to go uh, find a Buddha, if you ask three times, they generally say, okay. <laughs> Some threes happen a lot in the, this tradition. So the Buddha says, okay. And he gave him a very short teaching. He said, then Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed in reference to the cognized, only the cognized. It goes through the senses. That is how you should train yourself. When for you, Bahia, there is only the seen, in reference to the seen, only the heard, in reference to the heard, only the sensed, in reference to the sensed, only the cognized, in reference to the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here, nor there, nor in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Beautiful, simple teaching. In the seen, only the seen. In the heard, only the heard. In the cognized that which is known in the mind, only that. I'll leave, I'll end with this poem. Oh, then the story goes that, you know, Bahiyad said, please, you know, teach me. We don't, none of us knows how much time we have. They left that out. That was his, his final card he played with the Buddha. We don't know how much time we have. And the Buddha gave him this teaching and it's said that, that just shortly after that, Bahia thanked the Buddha, became fully enlightened. Happens when you are that lucky, <laughs> get around the Buddha and you're ripe. And then it's said that he, he left and was walking and he came to a narrow lane and, and a mad a cow trampled and gored him and he died just right after. So he was right about, don't know how much time we've got left. And there's uh, this, this lovely poem that 
it's said that was the Buddha uttered when asked about Bahia. I'll just leave you with it. Where water, earth, fire, and wind no footing find, there burns not any light, nor shines the sun. The moon sheds not her radiant beams, and the home of darkness is not there. When in deep silent hours the holy sage to truth attains, then she is free from joy and pain, from form and formless worlds released. So let's have a moment of quiet. We'll let these words drift away. I want to thank you for your kind attention and um, thank you for um, for your practice this month. It's been a, a joy and a pleasure to spend this month with you and uh, however much of it you've been here for. And I have deep gratitude and respect for you and your practice. So thank you for that. So we'll have just a minute quiet and then we'll do the chanting of the uh, sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.